Hey, Jay, Kane Marco wasn't the only juggernaut, right? Right, Miles. There was Colossus for a while. Oh, yeah, I remember that. He was the juggernaut and a Phoenix avatar at the same time. It, it got awkward. Super awkward. The third one's kind of a wild card. Oh? Who? Everyone's favorite Egyptology professor. No way. The Living Monolith. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 378 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And I guess in a sense, the issues we're covering today, I mean, they're all about emotions, and soap operas have emotions, so, you know. But do soap operas often feature the, you know, incorporeal avatars of those emotions? I don't know, I've heard some weird shit about some soap opera plots out there. Really? Yeah. I, I don't actually watch many soap operas, I realize. Like, I, I talk about X-Men as my soap opera, but I don't actually have that much basis for comparison beyond, like, general popular culture osmosis. I saw a whole bunch of tiny scraps of The Young and the Restless because my first stepmother was super into that show, but the main thing I remember was the really intense theme song. Da, 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 da. It was like really emotional all the time, and she watched it every day, so that was kind of the, the backbeat of my childhood. The intense emotional piano-based backbeat of my childhood. Were you in fact both young and restless? You know, I was. Was I on that show? Were there cameras in that house? Either way, it sounds like you had appropriate theme music. I guess. Anyway, this time, the emotion fan we're discussing is despair. With an apostrophe. And a Y. Despair. Something like that. It's just pronounced despair. It's one of those entirely visual names like Satire 9. I still love that bit where uh, Sink is taking a test in an issue of Generation X and he, ask how, he asks how that's spelled. And Beast responds just how it sounds. Yup. But yeah, weirdly enough, the two otherwise unrelated comics we're going to be talking about today, Juggernaut Number 1 and the 1997 Generation X Annual, both involve the characters facing off against Despair. He was busy in 97. I guess so, yeah. And I had actually remembered at least one of these, the Gen X Annual, being a Nightmare story. Because Nightmare, you know, just showed up in Generation X recently. He came out of Emma Frost's salad. But that's the thing. Like, Despair and Nightmare are two characters who are kind of a little too similar. Yeah, I was gonna say, I mix them up continually because they're largely redundant. I mean, okay, so Nightmare works with uh, nightmares, like actual literal dreams, and Despair works more with visions, I guess, which are not identical to dreams. And they both wear raggedy, scary clothing, but... Nightmare looks like a goth with a big nose, and Despair looks like Skeletor went to Hot Topic. Well, Nightmare looks like Dream of the Endless. Yeah, I guess really more like that. Which, uh, is to say, if a lot of other people in the 90s went to Hot Topic. Basically. Well, let's head right inside Hot Topic and see what's on sale. Jay, which of these issues do you want to start with? You know, 
thinking through Hot Topic, I'm, I'm thinking of, of the most memorable aspects of it for me from, from my, my, my would-be goth days in the late aughts, or sorry, in the late 90s and early aughts. I, I'm old and my memory is not what it was, and apparently I can't count anymore. And, and I remember a, a running motif there being elaborate pants. So I think we should decide based on who's got more elaborate pants. Okay, let's see. So we have the Juggernaut and we have Gen X. Gen X just wears sort of those tight red uniforms. I don't know that those are very elaborate. And the Juggernaut's pants, while they're not the most distinctive part of his outfit, are pretty much impervious to whatever and are empowered by a magical gem. So I think the Juggernaut might win that contest. Yeah, I'm going to say magical counts as elaborate for this purpose. All right. Well, in that case, let's talk a little bit about who the Juggernaut is. And what's going on in his magical pants. So, from Legion to the Shi'ar Empress Zandra more recently, Professor Charles Xavier's family members are often a big and complicated deal. And the first such big and complicated deal, in fact, both of those things very literally, um, whom we met way back in the Silver Age was Cain Marco, the unstoppable juggernaut, Charles Xavier's stepbrother. So here's the deal. After Charles's dad died and his mom married Cain's dad, Charles became the couple's new fave, and Cain was not pleased turning into a big old bully, or rather, continuing to be a big old bully because he kind of already was. Now, Charles and Cain ended up, I believe, in, the, in, in Korea together, in the army, and in a cave they discovered... Cain found a mysterious magical gem um, and then was immediately caught in a cave-in. But he was fine because the gem gave him the power of the evil rage god Sidorak, and Cain became the Juggernaut, which basically meant he was real good at wrecking shit. You know, as I was typing up notes for this episode, I accidentally typed Juggernaut as Huggernaut one time, and I guess that would be if Cain Marco was real good at hugging. I mean, he goes through phases. He does, that's true. He's kind of a big teddy bear. Sometimes, when he's not, like, destroying entire towns and probably killing a lot of people. Kane opposed his stepbrother in the X-Men many times, generally losing when the team found a way to pull off his anti-telepathy helmet and Professor X knocked him the hell out with the power of his mind. His helmet being another example of the, the principle, you can't go in through the face. You know, in Final Fantasy IX, head armor, like helmets and hats and stuff, mostly gives you magical defense, so it's kind of the same principle. Yeah, roughly. More recently, Juggernaut got punched across the country by Onslaught, before any of us, uh, including Scott Lobdell, the creator of Onslaught, even knew who Onslaught was. Kane then tried to find the X-Men to get help from Professor X, since Kane had been left with a mental block preventing him from talking about what had happened, only to discover that Professor X was, in fact, Onslaught. Kind of. Mostly. Since Onslaught was based largely on Xavier's pent-up resentments, and Kane had caused quite a few of said resentments, Onslaught psychically crammed Kane inside the gem of Sidorak that was a conduit for the powers of the Juggernaut. Now, all of this happened in the lead-up to Onslaught. What's happened since? Well, in X-Men Unlimited number 12, the mystical Gomor the Ancient guided Kane through the Crimson Cosmos, the dimension that's either inside or accessible by the Gem of Sidorak, trying to convince Kane to turn over a new leaf and not just keep falling into the quick fix of using fear and destruction to get what he wanted. While Gomer was trying to put Kane on the path of virtue, Despair's sister-slash-rival, Spite, was manipulating Kane into defeating Sidorak himself to free her. 
Since then, Cain has had all of the power of the now-defeated Sidorak with none of the evil god. But then, in X-Men Unlimited number 13, Cain busted up a random town during its Halloween parade, and only stopped when he realized he'd hurt a woman who had been nice to him once when he was there years before. And Gomer once again appeared to Cain and told him that he needed to check himself before he destroyed everything around him, that his powers would destroy, yeah, everyone, not just his enemies. Alas, Cain is very bad at listening, which brings us to Juggernaut number one, of one, it's a one-shot, A Night in Spite. This issue is written by Joe Kelly of Deadpool fame, penciled by Duncan Rouleau, inked by Steve Moncues, lettered by Chris Heliopoulos, and virtual calligraphy, and colored by... I don't know. The issue doesn't say. It's a mystery. Credit your colorists, Marvel 1997. Well, they definitely put some effort into the credits, because uh, everyone's got these adjectives uh, for what they do, so like pulverizing pencils, incendiary inks, but then sanguine script. I do not think that word means what they think it means. Maybe it was it was just written in a very measured and reasonable way to the artist. I mean, maybe. Doesn't really come off that way to the reader. But because that's the thing, like this issue is so very over the top, especially the art. The art is like, I don't know, my wife described it as reminding her of Sam Keith of the Max, but I think it's like that maybe 50% and 50% of fucking Ren and Stimpy or something. There's definitely some Chris Patello in there too, especially the noses. Uh, yes, very true. And you wouldn't think that kind of style would fit a Juggernaut story, but this type of story, it does. This story is... I mean, it's serious and intense in some ways, and some bad things happen, but overall it's just super goofy. Yeah, it's it's very cartoony, and that's that's the thing about the Juggernaut, is that based on his powers... He's a very, very cartoonish character. Yeah, and I mean, you can certainly go real serious with him and really focus on the actual destruction he causes. Um, I will say, Chuck Austin gets a lot of shit. He did that effectively in his run. I still like Chuck Austin's Juggernaut a great deal. Agreed. I I, I would categorize that one as more in the Huggernaut direction. (laughs) Yeah. But for now, we go to the tiny, truly awful New Mexico town of Sirocco Sprawl. Uh, in the first t- page that we see that town in, there's a very tired-looking orange lizard uh, laying beneath some cactuses and saying, blah, which definitely uh, adds to the Chris Pacello, uh references there. Chris Pacello does love his tiny weird animal showing up for no reason. More comics should have incidental reptiles. Yeah. You heard my new band, The Incidental Reptiles? We never had a concert, probably never will. There's also this patterning behind all of the panels, or almost as panel borders itself, it's hard to tell, but there are a lot of little Gem of Sidorak icons. The Gem of Sidorak has a very distinctive shape, and that also reminds me of Chris Pacello's Gen X, because we see those X logos behind the panels of a lot of Chris Pacello's pages. Yeah. And we open not only in the terrible town of Sirocco Sprawl, but in its terrible neighborhood bar. And Duncan Rulo really gets a chance to show all of his different caricature-like faces and bodies with all the regulars. This part actually reminds me more of Larry Stroman's X Factor. Like, Larry Stroman by way of a Saturday morning cartoon. Hmm, yeah. I mean, what you're describing keeps on taking me to Brett Blevins. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. The thing is, Brett Blevins' characters were caricatured in a consistent way, like, they all looked like Brett Blevins' characters. Mm. But somebody like Larry Stroman or Duncan Rouleau here, you have all kinds of different body shapes and all kinds of uh, of thoroughly different directions, and that's fun. 
all of these caricatured regulars, speak of a scary freak of nature who's been beating the hell out of folks. And so we think, ah, this must be the Juggernaut. His name's on the cover. But no, that's just a fake-out. It's actually just this enormous beefy dude with a face who looks like Bluto from Popeye who smashes through the door. No, 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 you gotta smash through the wall if you want to join X-Factor. Named Marvin T. Roxalt. What a name. Yeah, he's got a Satan's Gym shirt, a giant belt buckle that just says beer, which I kind of want, a back patch on his jacket that sometimes says Kick-Ass USA with, like, dollar signs as the S's, and sometimes it's just a Confederate flag. Uh, he is not portrayed sympathetically, I think. No, no, not even a little bit. And this is, is a classic technique, which is that you make the Juggernaut sympathetic by giving him someone more irritating to beat up. Exactly. And big enough so that you don't feel bad about the Juggernaut fighting this guy. I gotta say, though, when Mr. Roxalt uh, smashes the gun of the bartender who's trying to get Roxalt out of there, and the bullet hits the uh, jukebox, and the Juggernaut, who's just been sitting at the bar, gets annoyed, man, the page of the Juggernaut just looming over Roxalt, like this giant fucking mountain, it's fun. What I find hilarious is that the Juggernaut was just hanging out at the bar in the shadows in full costume, and nobody noticed. I mean, where does the 600-pound gorilla sit? Wherever it wants. I think everyone noticed, they just, you know, didn't want to mess with him. No, but they do the, the classic, like, standing up from the shadows reveal that imply that he has been overlooked until this point. Uh, maybe we didn't see, but he had a trench coat on and a fedora, and so just nobody noticed. Or, you know, he was like Aragorn in the back of uh, whatchamacallit, just wearing a cloak, and you couldn't see that he was Viggo Mortensen. Well, he, I, I just don't buy it. I mean, he's he's even wearing the helmet, and he's just hanging out drinking beer, and everyone's like, yeah, that's cool, whatever. Just one of, one, yeah, just some guy, probably a local. Hey, we don't know how Sirocco Sprawl works. Juggernaut is not... Not happy to have the jukebox destroyed. For the last two hours, nothing's played on that jukebox but line dance and achy, breaky static. Finally, I pick some good old depressing wanna-shoot-myself-out-behind-the-trailer country music, and you ruin it. And he puts down his drink and looms like the juggernaut he is, and, yeah, smashes up both, um... Marvin T. Rocksalt and Marvin T. Rocksalt's truck, and then head ba heads back inside for a celebratory drink, where he meets only one person who isn't terrified of him. That is Alex. She is a super stereotypically sexy lady with magically floating on the wind blonde hair, the tiniest of jorts, an even tinier ripped up tank top, and this snake tattoo winding around underneath her clothing. She is exaggeratedly cartoon sexy, like almost to a Jessica Rabbit level, but more, I don't know, New Mexican, I guess. Or at least more dive bar-esque. Juggernaut, you know, strikes up conversation. My mother told me to stay away from girls like you. Oh, your mother sounds boring. She's dead now. Cool. So you think Mama's boy can run with all this? And so Juggernaut finishes guzzling the last of the barrel-sized keg he's been drinking and crushes it against his helmet, and it is time for a spree of destruction through this terrible town. 
I thought their spree of destruction went somewhat wider than the town. Uh, maybe. I don't know. It's unclear. Regardless, it is pretty widespread because there is this great two-page spread of the Juggernaut using these enormous chains to drag a a semi-sized dumpster full of stuff down the now-burning street while Alex next to him carries a rocket launcher. Like, inside this dumpster, there's a fighter plane, the Statue of Liberty, the Golden Arches from McDonald's, football goalposts, the big boy restaurant mascot, pigs, cars, safes, bags of money with dollar signs drawn on them. Like, Yes, the comic could have gone through all of these misadventures. I think it's way funnier to just suddenly cut to, like, what have you guys been up to? Holy crap! It looks like they knocked over a roadside attraction. <laughs> it kind of does, yeah. But yeah, I, I agree. I feel like that's that's one of the story bits that is best left to implication. That's the thing. Like, this story is genuinely funny. Like, it does traffic in redneck stereotypes maybe a little more than I would like. Not nearly as bad as, say, the end of Old Man Logan. Nothing that thorough. But it's just kind of a goofy, dark Saturday morning cartoon. Very much so. Meanwhile, though, speaking of Saturday morning cartoon characters, Despair watches through a scrying pool. And the way Rouleau draws Despair is fun. He is so very moving so very precisely and exaggeratedly like some kind of spider ballerina, and he's surrounded by these black, toothy demon silhouettes near him that look like evil cartoon ghosts. It's just, it's so much fun. I love the way Rouleau draws basically everything in this. Yeah, he's got a style that's extremely well-suited to this story. As you said, not the one that you'd necessarily intuit as the artist for a juggernaut, but a really, really terrific match for this one for real. But Despair, however cool he may look, needs more energy before he can face his sister. I mean, obviously, Alex is, in fact, his sister, Spite, that we met next month Unlimited back in the day. Like, that is not a subtle thing, and it doesn't need to be. So, he unleashes a Despair wave on everybody in the town, and they all promptly show up to, uh, the Juggernaut's Path of Destruction and demands that he kill them. Uh, in fact, they have even a bunch of picket signs saying things like, kill me, please. <laughs> that one's for you, Hub and Cory. Alex slash Spite realizes what's up and suddenly gets all serious and says she needs to leave. Juggernaut is much, much less inclined to stop their rampage. You're yanking my chain, right? We were just getting warmed up here. Let's go blow up a Denny's! God, that's the best possible, like, romantic conversation starter. <laughs> right? And Juggernaut says, look, I can just smash the hell out of whoever you're worried about. It's not a problem. Until somebody shows up who he really doesn't want to smash, at least not in that regard. It's Black Tom Cassidy, his best friend, Banshee's brother. All right, so we should probably explain these two. Yeah, so Black Tom and Juggernaut have been partners in crime forever, for literal decades at this point. Their best buds, whether it's more of a bromance or a romance, is unclear and doesn't need to be specified. Either way, they are they are a dedicated couple. But things have been a little rough for at least Black Tom for a while now. In some Deadpool stories we don't care about and didn't cover, he got turned into a tree guy, basically. He's got, like plant powers. Uh, that's a big deal in the current Krakoa era. It'll actually be a big deal in an upcoming Generation X story we'll be covering very soon. 
But the only way it's relevant right now is the Juggernaut is surprised to see his best friend not so planty and just looking like a dude with a cool forked beard, to be fair. Unfortunately, what Black Tom then does is yell at Juggernaut for being a dumbass, drawing too much attention to himself, lying about killing Onslaught and the heroes to impress a girl, and generally just kind of being useless. After he smacks Juggernaut with his shillelagh, he says, It's no wonder your father never loved you. Who could love a worthless lummox like you when they had a perfect son like Xavier? Would you prefer pathetic? How about wretched? Pliable? And he also blasts Alex with his shillelagh beam, and she's revealed as Spite. Yes, as the demon lady we saw in X-Men Unlimited, as we referenced earlier, in pretty much her same look, she's wearing sort of a skimpy set of armor, but something about it looks so much cooler here. Like, it just looked sort of male gaze in X-Men Unlimited, and with this, she just looks weird. Yeah, yeah. This is Rulo handling it just beautifully. And Juggernaut just smacks Black Tom across the street, unfortunately, onto a road sign. Black Tom is impaled and seemingly dead, and Juggernaut freaks out, wondering if Gomer the Ancient was right, if he is destined to destroy everybody around him, not just the people he hates. Fortunately for Juggernaut, and I guess fortunately for Black Tom, it's not Black Tom at all. It's despair, just having a good old time and pulling one over on his old pal Juggernaut. Despair looks so cool here. He's so delightfully emaciated, and he's got this torn-up cape and jagged claws and this waving sea of black demons around him and just so much Kirby crackle everywhere. Despair and Spite have both, it turns out, been absorbing Juggernaut's emotions. That's kind of their deal. They're demonic, psychic, emotional parasites. And since Juggernaut defeated Cinerac, now his Juggernaut powers come from his own emotions. And so, as they're drained, he's getting less and less powerful. So what you're saying is that he really could be the Huggernaut. He could be the Huggernaut! Kane, Marco, you should have listened to Gomer the Ancient. You have so much power, and you could have used it for good. You could have used it for hugs. Now I'm imagining him as one of those free hugs assholes. I mean, it is Kane Marco. He is kind of an asshole. There's a big fight. Juggernaut's pissed at both of these demons, understandably, and wants to kill them both, but it's Despair who takes out the other two. And Juggernaut and Spite realize they both keep losing to their brothers. Juggernaut keeps losing to Professor X. Spite keeps losing to Despair. And I assume both their moms are also named Martha. So they team up. And Juggernaut, as he goes after Despair tells the big skeleton man that he himself has had so much despair in his life that he has learned how to deal with it through rage. And this next part is so cool. Right, Juggernaut walks basically headfirst into despair's blast and through it until he's basically a giant red skeleton in a helmet, which sounds ridiculous, but looks legitimately awesome. Yeah, like his helmet is still the Juggernaut helmet, and the skeleton underneath, it's not spindly. It's still very much a disembodied skeleton, but it looks, I don't know, super intimidating, like it's made of rusty iron or something. Like this giant skeleton could destroy you even worse than the Juggernaut could. Skeletons tend to look like people stripped down. This skeleton looks like someone condensed. Oh yeah, that's a great way of putting it. It's just pure, dense rage. And Spite, during this, absorbs all of Despair's stolen Juggernaut power, and the two of them throw Despair back into hell. 
At which point Kane says, all right, Spite, you won. Finish me off. And she doesn't. She restores him. Yeah, demons have to pay their debts, and anyway, he's an interesting guy. And after both demons are gone, the town, having seen the Juggernaut effectively rescued them from this horrible hellscape... Not to mention from Marvin T. Roxalt. Ah, right. They throw a three-day Juggernaut carnival, and it's great! This is this is good, got some very Janestown vibes. Oh, it really does. Oh man, that's a episode and show that have kind of aged poorly, as it turns out, based on some of the people involved in them. But it was still fun. And the party rages and rages, although not the previous kind of rage, until all they have left is light beer, and the juggernaut who hates light beer goes on another rampage. The end. I gotta say, though, come on, Kane. Light beer is really good for river floats and barcades. You could just, like, go to a barcade. It's perfect for that. Do you you really think that Soroka whatever the hell has a barcade? No, it's a terrible town. Sirocco Sprawl. I keep on thinking Sirocco Springs and then knowing it's not that. If it was Sirocco Springs, he could do the river float. Or at least a springs float. So, yeah, there we go. The Juggernaut has been lurking around various issues of X-Men Unlimited and around the edges of big events for a while. This is the first time he's been in the spotlight. It was not what I was expecting, but I thought it was really fun. It was a very Juggernaut-feeling story in terms of, of the you know, cartoonishness with a hint of darkness. Yeah, for real. And we'll see so much more of the Juggernaut over the years. As we mentioned, he's a focal character in Chuck Austin's run. He just had a miniseries and now is in Cy Spurrier's Legion of X. So yeah, in a way, this is kind of the start of him becoming a bigger deal. Well, this and that weird Malibu-verse crossover that happened. Never actually read that. Likewise. Huh. Well, anyway, the other journey into despair. Today is entirely different. It's Generation X Annual 1997. So before we go into the annual, which has some interesting context to it as well, um, let's let's sort of look at the story background. This is mostly related, the, the storyline here is mostly related to Emma Frost, and specifically the Hellions, who were her students when she was the White Queen of the Hellfire Club. Yeah, they were the fuchsia-clad rivals of Professor Xavier's New Mutants. Uh, Firestar was one of them briefly. Emma blew up her pony. It was a whole thing. R.I.P. Butterum. Now, the Hellions were killed by future bad guy Trevor Fitzroy at the start of the Blue Team Gold Team era in 1991, and Emma has never fully recovered from that loss. On the upside, she got back on that horse, er, uh, pony, I guess, and is now the co-headmaster of Generation X, the young mutant team of the mid-90s, alongside former X-Man Banshee. You should never get on a pony that's on fire. Oh, for real. Gen X is based out of the Massachusetts Academy, which is the Hellions old school that Emma ran back then as well, which has got to be creepy for her, right? Which brings us to Generation X Annual 1997, The Wages of Despair. So it's written by Elliot S. Magan, penciled by Dan Fraga, inked by Larry Stucker, colored by Don Skinner, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft and Emerson Miranda. And it is based on a novel by Scott Lobdell and Elliot S. Magan. Yeah, uh, there were actually three Generation X novels, it turns out. The other two were not adapted, as far as I know. Uh, The first one was called Crossroads, about the team taking a road trip and dealing with anti-mutant bigots. But the second one was called Genogoths, 
which involved one of these secret protectors of mutants from the shadows uh, needing help and and seeking out Gen X. And I don't know much about it beyond that, but the cover shows the Genogoths, I assume, as a few goth people and also a catfish person wearing overalls. So uh, I'm excited. Yeah, we're going to cover these someday, right? I think we'd better, yeah. Those those last two novels were by J. Stephen York. They were from 98 and 2000. Uh, this one was released in uh, June 97, so around the time the comic came out, slightly before. But uh, yeah, we should just read a bunch of Gen X novels and, and talk about how much we love that catfish person, presumably. I, I'm all about that. I Yeah, I cannot imagine a, a better way to spend a weekend. I mean, shit, we dedicated half an episode to the TV pilot, so, you know... I still want to do an episode on the porn parodies, just saying. There was never a Gen X porn parody, No, was the there? X-Men porn parodies. Oh, okay. I just don't know how specific they got. Like, do they have an 05-era X-Factor porn parody, but then also a government team-era X-Factor porn parody? And, like, there's a whole lot of continuity talking about why it's the same title, even though it's different groups of characters? I don't know, and that's why I think that we should cover them. Mm. Listeners, we do it all for you. Anyway, this particular annual, which is based on a novel as we mentioned, opens with John Oates' chamber narrating a training chase between Monet and Emma Frost. And the second page features the worst drawn butt I have ever seen in all 39 years of my life. And that is saying something. Yeah, yeah, Monet crashes into the dirt and you see her butt and it's it's just confusing. It doesn't look like a butt. I don't know what it looks like. Like another knee, maybe? I don't know. It doesn't look like a butt and it doesn't look like it's attached to the rest of her body. And yet it's very detailedly and lovingly rendered, and I just, I cannot fathom what was going on there. And I mean, the art for this issue is overall fine. Like, I don't, I didn't enjoy it as much as I enjoyed Duncan Rillo's art in Juggernaut, but it's also a very different thing. Like, I think it gets the job done. Occasionally you just get a really unfortunate panel. I, again, it is, it is literally the worst drawing of a butt I have seen in my entire life. Oh, now I'm thinking back to all the butts I've drawn over the years. Were they better than this? Yes. Were they worse? They were better. Oh. Well, I feel good about that. I think. Literally every drawing of a butt I have ever seen is better than this drawing of a butt. Huh. Well, uh, what happens after the terrible butt? I mean, everything, I guess. So, the the comic establishes the characters pretty fast. Yeah, we have Monet, M, being arrogant but competent, Jono, Chamber, being curmudgeonly but observant, Skin, trying too hard to be the life of the party, Husk, being overly serious and dedicated, uh, Mondo and the Moppets, Artie and Leech, are once again forgotten, as they so often are in Generation X. But that's probably fine. I mean, this was a novel originally, and you figure that's got to be a lot of people's first exposure to Generation X, not necessarily the comic. Like, a lot of people probably came to the team through the novels. So keeping the cast a little smaller? That makes sense to me as does establishing at least the basics almost immediately. How many people do you think, like, asked for the Douglas Copeland book for Christmas and got this instead? (laughs) Yeah, those are um, a little different. I mean, I haven't read the book, but if it's anything like the comic, they're, they're different. Anyway, after Monet crashes, Emma ends up staring into a glowing pink egg hovering by a tree and says only the name Harun. Now, if you are a savvy reader and an old New Mutants fan, you might recognize this as the first name of Harun ibn Salah al-Rashid. That is Jetstream, one of the now-dead Hellions. The comic doesn't actually ever mention what the word Harun means, though. I, I assume the novel did at some point, but that part is confusing in the comic. 
again, if you, you know, don't know way too much about New Mutants. Now, Harun is, is the first but not the last of the spectral Hellions to show up, because as M is waiting to talk to Emma and Sean in Sean's office, she briefly hallucinates Buford Wilson, unfortunately codenamed Beef. Oh yeah, one of the two new 90s Hellions that nobody cares about. Nobody. Meanwhile, Everett hallucinates Cat's Eye, one of my favorite Hellions, who transforms and attacks him, but her hair is the wrong color and she talks normally, which kinda bugged me. Oh yeah, she used to have sort of a Yoda backwards speak, but very childish back in New Mutants. Yeah, she had really distinctive speech patterns. Um, And Everett is the first one to recognize that what he's seeing is a dead Hellion, although he also thinks that it can't possibly really have been her, because he would have been able to sync with either a living person or a ghost. Okay, okay. Has Sync ever encountered a ghost? I mean, I'm sure he did at some point. I don't know. It seems like kind of a reach to assume he could do that. There was definitely a spooky ghosty story in Gen X, but I don't think it was actually a ghost. So Jubilee is next, and training in the gym, she sees Taro. Not only does she see Taro, but Taro is, I guess, sufficiently a jerk or sufficiently close to supervillainy that she gets her own logo font complete with moons and stars when Jubilee yells her name. It's so great! Now, I know for a fact that Tarot of the Hellions never had her own comic, but I don't know, maybe Marvel went into the future and stole the logo from the infamous Tarot Witch of the Black Rose? Would they have had to? I don't know how long that comic has been around, but it definitely gives me started in the late 90s vibes. You know, that's a really good point. We are getting into that era. But, uh, oh boy, that's a comic. That's a very different Tarot. Yeah, nobody's vagina is haunted in this issue, as far as we know. I mean, it's not mentioned, at least. And we appreciate that. Penance sees the other boring 90s Hellion, Bevatron, in the infirmary. Every time I see his name, I, I want him to be a robot beaver, and he's not. There was an issue of Howard the Duck where there was a Canadian nationalist who had a robot beaver suit, and he fought Howard. Good. I have that issue. A penance is clearly rattled, and um, Paige, Husk, and Diamond Skin gives her a hug and only gets slightly torn up in the process. Oh, this part is so sweet. Like, Banshee's really worried at first. But uh, Emma points out that, you know, Paige has diamond skin, and it's probably been a really long time since anyone's hugged Penance. Again, this is efficient storytelling, which you need in an introduction to characters, to a large cast, the way the book would have been. Emma's a hard-ass, she's closed off, she's haunted— but she also is genuinely compassionate and genuinely cares about her students. Yeah, solid steel with a squishy marshmallow core. Kind of the opposite of Psylocke in that regard. Squishy mar marshmallow with a solid steel core? I mean, you know, back when she was in her princess days, at least. Solid princess with a squishy steel core. These are weird flavors. So everyone is now disoriented and depressed, except for Jono, for Chamber, who is always depressed and therefore used to it, and so decides to use his, his power as the one who is used to depression to find out what the hell's up. We haven't been going into too much detail about the characters because this comic doesn't, but if you're unfamiliar with Chamber, if you haven't listened to a Gen X episode of Red Gen X before, Chamber's deal is that he has a psionic explosion going on in his body all the time, and the first time it manifested, it blew off his lower jaw and the top half of his chest. So now he can't eat or breathe, he doesn't need to, has to speak telepathically, and usually has a big scarf or leather wrap around the giant hole in his front. Hence the depression. Said explosion is not usually, as it is in this issue, thermonuclear. 
we'll get to that. Let's talk a little about the pacing of this part, because in the comic, the way it's the way the story is told, the depression and ennui hits everybody very quickly. But nonetheless, the narration we get from Chamber really helps control that pacing, and it also helps add to the surreal nature of the plot. Like, time stops making sense. All of a sudden, things are just different. And that impressed me a great deal about this adaptation, because here we just have a double-length comic to tell a full novel's worth of plot. We don't have that room to breathe we would have in the novel. And yet I found it pretty effective. I don't know. What do you think, Jay? No, I thought it worked really, really well. So the hallucinations amp up at this point. Next, Beef somehow blows apart a gazebo, which everyone witnesses, and and everyone gets more and more fucked up. Like, they don't even respond to a massive fire nearby, and it it takes Janu a long time to convince Monet finally to fly him out, uh, where he douses the fire through deeply questionable means. By exposing my bionuclear core to the elements, I can steam up enough of this pond to launch a contained cyclone. Which turns into a cloud over the burning hotel, which Jono then zaps into raining. There are some really great panels, though, as M pulls the enormous steam clouds in her indifferent wake. She's not even paying attention to what's going on, and yet she's still heavily altering this weather pattern that Chamber has created, which really does get across just how ridiculously powerful she is when she's not even thinking about it. She can do something like this. Okay, this is not how Chamber's powers work. Well, I mean, no... But it's fine. Sometimes Cyclops' blasts do heat things up. Okay. Bionuclear core. Eh. I mean, psionic energy never made any goddamn sense to me anyway. Like, I've never been able to explain Chamber's powers, so this doesn't seem, like, that different from the way they haven't made sense in the past. So Chamber hitchhikes home, having been abandoned by M, and promptly gets pulled into the hallucinations, uh, hallucinating himself whole without his his you know chest and lower jaw missing, at the London Hellfire Club, where he's greeted by despair. And in that fantasy, Emma Frost recruits him to join the Hellions to use his destructive powers in her service. Um, meanwhile, back at at Generation X headquarters. Everyone is getting dragged into the biosphere and hung up on a tree. Something is clearly controlling them. And they'll be joined shortly by Sink and Skin, who had been on a road trip to Boston, but got worried and decided to head home and immediately fell prey to the same torpor. This part's really interesting to me, because while they're out at a diner before they decide to go back... They talk briefly about these girls they met who tried to bring them to a Friends of Humanity meeting. Like, that must have been a a big subplot in the book. Because in the comic, they just leave to get away from everybody being weird, and then they just come back. And, like, that's the whole thing. And I think it works. I mean, there's this dreamlike, time-doesn't-make-sense quality to the comic. Uh, More fun than the dreamlike, time-doesn't-make-sense quality we've had the last two years, to clarify. I want to break in there, too, because we talk a lot about timelines not making sense in comics or the passage of time seeming uneven. Here, it seems like a very, very deliberate affectation. Yeah, exactly. It's like everybody's in this kind of waking, low-grade anxiety dream. Yeah. And Despair is now just openly hanging out in the school. Uh, And giving villain speeches, as one does. Fresh meat! Emotionally unformed, yet powerful, and mine. Through flaws in the mature personality of their leader, the Frost Female. You can tell he's a villain because he calls women females. 
right? I just I just have to do Despair's voice like Skeletor. I just have to. And I'll take this opportunity to plug Garden Plots with Skeletor. Oh, uh, yes. They are friends of the podcast, and that is a really fun show. It's what it sounds like. It's Skeletor running a gardening show. Uh, We've both guested on it. Yes, yes. Uh, Jay plays Ram Man, and I occasionally play Buzz Off. This despair looks more like an old corpse than the ballerina death spirit of Juggernaut number one. He's definitely more intimidating here, but I don't know. Less fun to look at. So anyway, Skin touches both Chamber and Sink, which somehow jolts Chamber out of his funk so he can confront despair. Despair is very into this, and he frees everyone else so he can focus on Chamber. He runs Chamber through all these different fear scenarios, these waking nightmares that everybody else has been stuck in. Some of them make more sense than others. Yeah, so for instance, uh, Sean Cassidy, Banshee, is about to be beheaded because his subjects have overthrown his benevolent rule. I I assume the subjects in question are leprechauns? I mean, they've gotta be. He's the lord of Cassidy Keep, and Cassidy Keep basically just has leprechauns, and apparently a giant executioner as well. Maybe that's a bunch of leprechauns, just crammed into like an executioner outfit holding up an axe. Makes sense to me. And we also see Husk trapped in a taxi during the end of the world, and this one I like. This makes sense. She can't affect anything. She can't save the day. She's always been so ambitious, and she just really wants to be the hero. She wants to do everything she can to make the world a better place. And so just having to be a bystander, I can see being nightmarish for her. And Emma, of course, looks on helplessly as the Hellions are killed. Yeah, she is just flashing right back to that horrible, traumatic experience. Although, come to think of it, I think she was comatose at the time. I don't recall exactly. But, you know, she regardless. Was, yeah. The ex- yeah, but I mean, the experience itself, of course, is right there with her. And it wouldn't surprise me if her telepathy, even while she was comatose, picked up her dying student's last moments. That would make sense, yeah. Despair and Chamber continue to face off, and Despair continues to goad Chamber, who finds himself responding on a level that he's never really reached before. Sometimes I think these subhuman wackadoodles who infest Sean's computer database actually look for things to do or say that energize us to reach beyond any place we've ever gone before to do them in. Wait a lampshade? Exactly that! Yes, yes, villains do do that kind of a lot, Jono. Well, and especially the ones who are, are themed around abstract concepts like despair. And what Chamber does at this point is blow himself and despair up, then rematerialize his hole until his center blows up once again. Whoops. I mean, that's kind of fine, because when he first comes back, he's this gigantically muscular naked man, and I don't know, I just wouldn't be able to accept Chamber as that. I mean, it sucks that he doesn't have a lower jaw and stuff, but he looks cooler, at least. Can you, can you accept him as gigantic and muscular and naked if he doesn't have a lower jaw and chest? I don't know, I've never seen him that way. Well, I mean, obviously you have. No, no, he's in the shadow at that point. But anyway, that's, uh... That's Gen X Annual 1997, an adaptation of a novel. I feel like we should talk about this on two levels. As a comic story on its own, and as an adaptation, admittedly, of a book that we haven't read but can assume some things about. So, what did you think? Did it succeed on zero, one, or two of those levels? I can't speak to how well it adapts the novel because I haven't read the novel. That said, I would not have pegged it as an adaptation if I hadn't known. That seems positive. Absolutely. I think I think it's a solid annual. Um, I think it's a pretty fun comic. And I think the fact that it is an adaptation means that it tries some things and goes in some directions that comics don't necessarily ordinarily do, and it's better for that. 
Yeah, I agree. Like, it doesn't feel like your standard, especially mid to late 90s comic. It has sort of a a slower, quieter feel to it that I enjoyed. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Meanwhile, you've got questions. Tori asks on Twitter, Have we ever met Havoc's adoptive parents? Are they still around? Tori, we have met them exactly twice, in X-Factor 13 very briefly, and more extensively in X-Factor minus one. They are presumably still around in that their deaths have never been mentioned, but they haven't actually appeared since X-Factor minus one. Or I guess technically since X-Factor number 13, which took place after X-Factor minus one. This is kind of weird to me, though, because we know how jealous Alex often is of his brother Scott— So you'd think Alex would focus at least a little more on something he has that Scott never really did. Except his adoptive parents suck. Like, they're they're tragic, but they're just kind of awful, too. Oh, okay. Well, I'm definitely a big fan of cutting family members out of your life who uh, do not make your life better and instead make it worse, so, uh... Well done, Alex Summers, which is not a phrase that we can often say. I remember his, his adoptive sister being fairly cool and being kind of annoyed that she never showed up again, but... Come on, Marvel, bring back that lady. I don't know her name, but bring her back. Name's Haley. Bring back Haley. Neil asks, also on Twitter, Has best person in Marvel Dr. Corbeau ever encountered worst person in Marvel Cameron Hodge in main continuity? And if not, what do you think would happen if they did? They have not encountered one another. In fact, Super Doctor Astronaut Peter Corbeau has only been in a little over 30 issues over the course of his many decades of existence. Which actually ties into the next part of my answer. Because the issue with Super Doctor Astronaut Peter Corbeau is that since he's the best at everything, he would solve any problems he encountered so quickly that you wouldn't really have a story. So I'm thinking if he ever did meet Cameron Hodge, he would just like stop Hodge in his attack and call him champ, but like it wouldn't come off as patronizing. And he'd ask Hodge questions about his beliefs and reflectively listen. And then he'd use some subtle questions to guide Hodge into realizing that his bigotry and his hatred just didn't really make sense. And they were hurting him in addition to hurting the people around him. And then Hodge would try not to cry, but he would cry. And Peter Corbeau would like put a hand on his shoulder and say, it's okay, buddy, until Hodge felt better. And then they'd get ice cream that was compatible with Hodge's horrible robot body, Uh, but then also they'd work together for restorative justice, because Corbeau would help Hodge also understand that even the truest change of heart can't really undo past actions, and only future actions can help to even them out. The end. We are an entirely listener-supported podcast, and some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the show from a range of fictional characters and concepts. The, The microphone goes today to Sexy Alex, who is definitely just normal lady and not a demon named Spite. Mercy, Mark Diva. Is it hot in here, or is it just you? If you think you can keep up, want to accompany a girl on a hot little rampage across town? Let's cause some property damage and get our hearts racing. Here, sexy, hold this old-timey bundle of dynamite and pass me that rocket launcher. Time to pay my library late fee. Uh, uh... Ah, nuts. Mark didn't last long at all, thanks to dear brother despair slurping up every last bit of negativity until there was nothing left. Huh, let's see. Oh, Oh, Ben Goldberg! Yes, you. 
Pick that tongue up off the ground, honey, and let's you and me jaywalk past a church while tossing water balloons full of cat pee at cars. Mmm, just like that. That is what a girl wants. Such delicious energy you have, Ben, and... Ah, oh, seriously? Damn it, Despair! Stop eating the souls of my dates! I already called dibs! I'm telling Mom! And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode and original illustrations by David Wynn. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And please, rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform. It really helps. Next week, the X-Men... Well... Half the X-Men go to space. Mm-hmm.